First time I've ever gotten whistles when I came to preach. Wow, I am so honored to be here, you all. It is, um, the best thing I can say to you is this. There's nothing like seeing what God is doing on the other side of a dream. And it's amazing to see what takes place in this church today. Um, I've been here these four other services and just watched the people and met the people and just learned to love what has taken place here and to know your staff team. I mean, I appreciate the applause, but I want to tell you something. I've been working with churches around the country uh, for 17 years now. I don't know of a greater staff team than you have at this church. Could we honor them? Okay, so uh, this is so interesting for me. I I, I get to preach a lot because I work with about 413 churches in Kentucky now, so I preach every week. There is seldom a church I'm like a little bit intimidated to be in preaching, but I know the caliber of preaching you guys get on an ongoing basis. You know, it's one of those things you go, man, live, I got to follow that? What is that about? I'm kind of reminded of a friend of mine who told me about a guy that was in his church. He was pastoring, and this guy that was in his church didn't really like his preaching, and he often mentioned it. The guy was an English prof, and so he'd take notes on grammar and mistakes made in thought and kind of all that kind of stuff. And one day, as this pastor was getting ready to leave the building, the guy was waiting for him. This English prof said to him, I think you're a model preacher. And he thought, maybe he's changed his opinion. Now, he knew that this English prof was one of those guys that uh, memorized a new word every week and the definition that goes along with it. So he got back to his home and got a dictionary out and threw the dictionary open to the word model and it said this, a small replica of the real thing. That's kind of how I feel this evening uh, as I come to you. I'm really, really thrilled to have this chance to stand before you. Now, I'm going to talk to the men tonight. I hope you don't mind. Ladies, I'm going to be talking specifically to the men. Guys, I'm going to ask for you give me, just to give me a little patience, if you wouldn't mind, uh, for this reason. Sometimes when you hear a sermon, you run up to the pastor at the end, and you want to talk to him and thank him for making your hearts feel at ease and for easing tensions in your life and for making you feel better about things. And other times, you hear sermons that are kind of challenging. You know, they have high expectations, and they make me consider a revisitation of my life. And you kind of, people never come up and talk to you at the end of those sermons. Well, this is one of those sermons. Um, as I was praying to the Lord, what should I share with the men? Um, he brought me to this passage of scripture that I want to share with you. And so I want to focus on a passage in 1 Corinthians. Corinthians is a very interesting book in the Bible. What we find is that there are some difficult things taking place, some confusions in the hearts and minds of people. There's actually some uh, dissension within the church body. And uh, Paul uh, is, is uh, someone, they send someone to Paul to tell them what's going on, so he writes a letter to them. 1 Corinthians is a letter to the church in Corinth. One of the reasons that this is such an important passage for us today, fathers, as we think about our role as fathers is that what was taking place in Corinth is much like the society that we live in today. It was known for sin and debauchery and said if someone said you'd been Corinthianized, it meant that you were a real kind of ongoing sinner, that you really enjoyed that and that was kind of an acceptable thing in that particular uh, town, in that particular society. Not only that, there were lots of belief systems. We'd say there were lots of religions that were playing out there in Corinth. So there were this sinful environment, and many ideologies, and men you were parenting in that kind of a situation. Now, I know one thing that Josh taught me when we were members here under his leadership, 
was that there was a three-word phrase that if he said the first two words, then you would easily come in with the last word. And you've probably learned this from him, so I'm going to ask you to help me out. I'm going to say the first two words if you'll scream out the last one. Here we go. Ready? Context is king. Excellent. Say it one more time. Context is king. For those of you that are learning this phrase, he'll use it a lot probably. In order for you to understand what I'm talking to you about, I need for you to understand the greatest of context. We're going to start before time began. Before time began, Father, Son, Holy Spirit existed in heaven with the heavenly host. There came a point when there was rebellion in heaven because there was a Lucifer. Lucifer was the brightest of all of the angels. This particular angel, Lucifer, determined that he wanted to be God. He wanted the authority of God in heaven. So he created a rebellion, and in that rebellion, he lost, obviously, and God cast Lucifer and a third of the angels to earth. Now, at this point, his name changes to Satan, the great deceiver, and these angels are now the demons that are on planet earth, the invisible demons and the invisible Satan on earth. And I want you to realize something vitally important to our conversation this evening. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life abundantly. There are two teams at odds on planet earth. Satan has come to steal the hearts and the eternities of your children. He has come to do his bidding in your children's lives. He longs for them to never know the joy of the abundant life in Christ and to never know Eden again in heaven. That's what he's after. Then there's Jesus who says, I came that you may have life abundant, joy beyond comprehension, peace in the midst of the storm, and an eternity that is something that could only be imagined. We have two warring factions still at work in our world today. And that's why this is so important. This conversation is so important to us men because God called us, the men in our families, the fathers in our families, he called us to lead our children and our families to the cross and the gospel. He called us to protect the hearts of our children. So in Corinth, we had this amazingly odd um, thing taking place in the midst of this uh, disillusioned church. And Paul comes toward the end of the letter to the Corinthians, and he gives a one-sentence expectation that would change everything for the Corinthian church. It would, it would protect the family of God. And I believe that these terms, as we understand them, will also, if you're going to be the fathers that you need and, and should be for your family, for your children, these terms, as understood scripturally, will also be protection for your family. So if you want to turn to um, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, I'm going to read a verse there, and we're going to land right there for the rest of our time together. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, it simply says this, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. So what does it mean to be watchful? Men, what does it mean to be watchful for our families? It means to be on the lookout. In ancient times, uh, cities were protected by walls. Those walls were the best defense for an army that was approaching. Men would stand on those walls and they would be the lookout 
And they would stand on those walls and they'd watch for an enemy to approach. They would be the first line of defense. Just the knowledge of an enemy approaching was the first line of defense. They would stand on those walls. And this, the passage, the term literally needs to be vigilant, to remain awake, to be there. Men, there are two things if you're going to be the watchman for your family. You must be present and you must be alert. You must be present and you must be alert. And I can prove to you through some statistics that the enemy will get to our families if we are not on that wall and alert. Listen to these statistics. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. That is 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. That's 20 times the average. 80% of rapists and with anger problems come from fatherless homes. That's 14 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. That's nine times the average. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. That's 10 times the average. 70% of youths in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. That's nine times the average. And 85% of all youths in prison come from fatherless homes. That is 20 times the average. Men, our presence is necessity. But while we're present, we need to be alert. We need to be engaged with our children. As one pastor put it, guys, it's time to get away from the video games and the golf clubs. It's time to give our time to our kids. We need to be present Listen, your child hasn't the emotional or spiritual maturity to see the enemy's attack coming. It is you, Dad. You who must, you must, you must, as the Holy Spirit spoke through Peter, be this. Listen closely. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you know how lions do their bidding? They find a herd, then they approach the weakest and attack the weakest and take them down. Guess who the weakest is in your home? It's your children. The enemy is after your children. The second point that Paul makes here is to stand firm in the faith. That is, in battle, to stand your ground. Now, I have this image in my head, and here's the image that I have in my head. The image that I had in my head is that there's a soldier standing on the front lines. An army is beginning to attack. He looks to his right and to his left and realizes that he's alone, but in his mind, he hears the general screaming, Stand your ground, boys. Stand your ground. Stand your ground, boys. Stand your ground, because you're the only thing that stands between you and your family. Stand your ground. Now, you may be wondering, Rick, what does it mean to stand your ground like in what way are we to stand our ground? Well, the church in Corinth had had some false teaching going on. What stand your ground means in this passage, it means that we embrace the truth of God's word, the doctrines that are true, and we don't waver as the culture changes 
or people change their minds. We realize that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is all-knowing. But his character, in his character, he is incapable of lying or misleading. So we hold firm to the truths of God's word at all cost. Early in 1 Corinthians, uh, we find these words. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We see two teams. Here's what we see. We see the team, well, the, the, many, the term many use today is my truth. Have you heard this often? My truth is, my truth is, my truth is, if you watch a talk show for 30 minutes, you'll hear somebody say it's my truth four or five times normally. You're at lunch with somebody. My truth is. You know what's intriguing about the my truth ideology? What's intriguing about it is that imperfect, fallible, depraved minds have concluded what truth is. And they conclude what truth is because it fits in their lifestyle. Now, there's the other team, and that's the the truth team. That's those of us who say to ourselves, we know it to be true, that God's word has no falsities in it. That God's word is always truth. That God's word is not foolish as we read in scripture that the, 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 my, the my truth folks think. It's folly, it says. It's foolishness. God's word is foolishness to those who are natural. That is, they are not in Christ. But we understand that God's word is truth. And we don't waver with the times. We don't change our minds. We don't allow the media to determine what is truth? We know what is truth because God gave it to us in his word. Guys, I'm going to make you a bit uncomfortable for a second if you wouldn't mind, okay? Play with me for a minute if you would. I'm going to read three statements to help you determine if you're floating at times. So here we go. Yes or no. I change my stance or embrace my truth on non-negotiable doctrinal issues. So, for instance, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It's only through Jesus Christ, not Buddha or Muhammad or anyone else, that you make your way to God. It's only through the cross and Jesus Christ. But some might say, well, now, wait a minute. He's a loving God. No loving God would send anyone to hell. Maybe if that's where you're living, perhaps you don't realize it, but you're kind of floating toward a my truth mentality. How about this one, yes or no? I change my opinion on what is right or what is wrong with the flow of the culture or when laws change. Now, so for instance, scripture says that sexual activity between same-sex couples is sin. Did you change your mind on this when the culture changed its opinion and our government passed a law blessing same-sex marriage? If you did, you may be a floater. Or maybe this one, yes or no. I revise God's truth so that it makes my life more comfortable. For instance, as I had said earlier, God made you the head of your home. But because you don't want the pressure of being responsible for your child's spiritual growth, you rationalize and say, well, my wife's better at that kind of thing, and that's kind of what she does. You may be a floater. It's just important, men, that we understand that we set our, our feet firmly. And here's why, men. Because God is called the Heavenly Father. The best representation to your children of what the Heavenly Father is like 
is what their earthly father is like. It's important that we never come across as hypocritical. If we say we're followers of Jesus Christ, as best we possibly can, none of us are perfect, we need to live that way. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite authors and just amazing mind, R.C. Sproul once wrote a book, and in it he shared a story of a young German boy. Um, His family were devout Jews. They always went to the synagogue. They always carried out the rituals of the Jewish tradition, and they moved at one point to another town. At that point, there was no synagogue there. Now, they could have continued practicing their Jewish traditions as best they possibly could have, but the father took the family to the Lutheran church. His son, after a period of time, was very uncomfortable with this because he thought that he knew who they were. He finally asked his dad, why did you take us to the Lutheran church when we're not Lutherans? And his dad said something like this, all the wealthy people go to the Lutheran church, this will be good for business. Some year later, some years later, that young man was in Great Britain, and you found him often in the British Museum writing. He wrote a document that changed the world, the Communist Manifesto. His name, Karl Marx. What caused him to have bitterness toward the God person? Because the person who was his dad chose hypocrisy. Men, it is vital. If you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to the best of your ability, live by the truths of God's word. What does this mean? It means that when I don't feel any longer in love with my wife and she just doesn't make me happy, that instead of counseling and working toward making our marriage better, I don't just divorce her and move on because my kids will say, I thought you were a follower of Jesus Christ, and the Bible was your guide. You've told us many times that the Bible says that shouldn't happen, that you shouldn't do something like that. Your child should not go on your computer and do a little search and find out that there's been pornography there because Dad reminds us all the time that we're to remain pure because we're followers of Jesus Christ. Hypocrisy is the great killer of your child's journey with Jesus. Now, guys, I want you to hear me. Please don't misunderstand me. None of us are perfect. If Pastor Josh were here and I gave him a microphone, he could tell you many times that I lost my cool, said words believers are not supposed to say, etc. But to the best of our ability, and when we do fall, we approach our children and say, I didn't do what was right, but I'm doing the best I can. I believe Jesus will forgive me, but don't leave the faith. Stay in the faith. I think you get my point here. The third point that is made in this passage, it says, act like men. Now you go, what does that mean, act like men? Does it mean don't act like women? That's not what it means. What it means is don't act like boys. When you've got a battle to fight, don't run. That's what little boys do. Little boys get scared and they run. It means be brave as you parent is what it means. Let me see if I can give you a scenario here. Let's imagine you're reading your iPad, you're all laid back in your chair, and your 16-year-old daughter comes in, she's dressed for her date, and you look over that iPad and you think, 
Her boyfriend's going to love that outfit. I mean, it is uh, sexually oriented, and she doesn't even realize it. And you graciously say to her, babe, I'm afraid you're going to need to change your outfit. Here's the kind of stuff you're probably going to hear. I hate you. Nobody else's parents tells them to change clothes. Mom chose this outfit. There are times, men, when we have to say, I will not run from the hard conversation because the hard conversation is in protection of my children. Now, I do want to give you a little hope here, guys. I've lived life long enough to have worked with enough families to know their children screamed, I hate you, and you're a bad parent, and all that kind of stuff, to hear what they say 20 years later. So let me give you some reinterpretations of those phrases. The child who once screamed, you're the worst dad ever, may say to that same father 20 years later, you're the best dad ever. I'm so glad God gave me a dad like you. That child who says all the other kids' parents let them, 20 years later may make a statement like this. The other kids' parents must not have loved them as much as you love me because if they did, they would have done whatever was necessary to protect their daughters the way that you protected me. And the biggie, which is the one that you always despise hearing, I hate you, 20 years later may go something like this. I love you, and I want to thank you for the number of times you made courageous decisions Decisions that caused me to scream, I hate you. So men, here's the thing. You need to become the heroes for your children. It takes courage to be a father. It takes action to become your child's hero. And sometimes it's very difficult. And then the final point that's made here is this. Be strong. Be strong is what it says. Now, I just want to share with you that that's an interesting phrase. In the New Testament, that term is only used twice. It's used here, and it's used in Ephesians 3.16. To understand it better, I should probably let you know what Ephesians says. Ephesians says these words. Be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit. Capitalized spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit, because that's where your courage comes from. That's where your power comes from. That's where being the man you should be comes from. Now, did anybody in this room ever watch Popeye the Sailor Man? Am I the only guy old enough to know Popeye the Sailor Man? So Popeye, as you may recall, was this guy, a little weak sailor. He had to do uh, unbelievably important things. He didn't have the strength to do it oftentimes. But when he ate spinach which, by the way, I think is disastrous. When he ate spinach, all of a sudden he got big muscles and he overpowered bullies and fought the fight and won the fight because there was something that was in him that gave him the power and empowered him to do that which he could not do in his own power. This is what the Holy Spirit in us does. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if at some point you became a follower of Jesus Christ, at that moment, Scripture says the Holy Spirit indwelled you. The Holy Spirit is in your heart. 
And it is through him that we find an equipping and an empowering and the ability to do things that are beyond us. Whenever we feel that we're weak, we become strong in the Spirit's power. We call upon the Spirit to be at work through us. I can't begin to tell you the number of times as we were planting this church and thought she's not going to make it this week. Got a hard financial decision this week. There's no way in the world that it's going to work out next week. That some of us would pray, Holy Spirit, please work through us to do what only you could do through us because there's no possible way that we can do this in our own power. I need you. I can't begin to tell you the number of times as I raised Josh and Lee that I said, Lord, there is no way that I can do this right with my kids. There's no right move here. I need the Holy Spirit to do something on my behalf, and he did. Man, you have a power within you, and that power is a person, not a thing. It is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit willing to be at work in you and through you. Do not ignore the power that is in you. When you need courage, pray, Holy Spirit, give me courage. When you need the right words, pray, Holy Spirit, give me the right words. When you need inner peace, when it's a difficult time and you know you're going to approach your child about a tough issue, settle my spirit so that I can speak to them in love, not in anger. And the Holy Spirit will be at work. He will be at work. That last sentence there in those two verses says this. Let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. So do all four of these things with your motive being love. Do all four of these things with your motive being love. Now, when you see the word love in the New Testament... There are three different definitions. One is eros love, where we get our word erotic. It's very selfish love. I long to experience the erotic with you, and so give me what I want. There's philo love, or philo love, uh, where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It is a love that says you are my brother, but it also has its deepest longing to get something from you rather than give something to you. And then there's the final love. It's agape love. This is the term that is used in this passage. This kind of love is a love that says, I will sacrifice for you because of my deep love for you. The best way I can illustrate this kind of love is to speak of someone who might have a child who is comatose in the bed, and they're there for months and maybe years, and there's nothing that that child can give back to that mother or that father, and yet that mother or father comes every day and every night and stays with them. And as they're warm, they place a cool wash rag on their forehead. And when their excrement um, is released, they clean them up. And when they just need to believe that they might be able to sense a pat on their hand, they hold that hand and they pat on it, knowing they're going to get nothing in return. This is the love that we are told to give to our children. It's the kind of love that says, I'll set aside my needs because I love you so much. I want to do whatever it takes to meet your needs and protect you and care for you and teach you God's word and instill the gospel in you. That's the kind of love that is spoken of here. Men, I want to say one last thing to you. If you're like me, I'm a sinner. Any other sinners in the room? Raise your hand if you sin, will you? If you didn't raise your hand, you just join the rest of us. Because 1 John says, if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. But what I want to say to you is this. 
we've mentioned that there's an enemy named Satan at work. And the way that he keeps us from being at work as fathers is he continually whispers to us, you're too deep a sinner. How do you think you could ever lead your home? You're a sinner that nobody knows about. I know your sins. You're not worthy of leading your household or helping your children. You're such a sinner that if people knew about you, you wouldn't even be able to go to church. That's the kind of lies that the enemy whispers to us over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. But that's not what Jesus said. Romans 8, he says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. What do those words mean? What was being stated to us? Through this Romans 8 passage, here's what was being stated. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and take every sin that every human being ever committed upon himself. And when he took those sins on the cross and his blood was shed, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you were washed white as snow. There are no sins on your person. There are no blotches of sin that represent the many sins that you have committed or will commit. Jesus took all of that sin off of you on the cross. Isaiah says this, Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they can be as wool. Man, I want to say something to you. Don't let the enemy win in your mind. What Jesus did on the cross removed Every stain of sin in your being. You need to realize that you are a redeemed, transformed child of God with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, willing to be at work on your behalf. And you are free of the bondage of sin. If you listen to the enemy, you'll believe you're not free. But the Word of God says you are, and we've already determined that it is always true. Be free, lead your family, guide your children, be brave and courageous, and allow the Holy Spirit to work through you, and you will be the man of God for your children that God longs for you to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together tonight, and I thank you for your love. You have been so good to us, and we are so, so grateful. As we are here together this evening, we realize that you did make it possible through the cross for us to be cleansed of all sin. And it is wonderful to go to sleep at night realizing that we don't carry the burden of the darkness of sin. Rather, we realize the light of your love and we sleep well because of this. Father, help us to embrace it fully. Help us to set the enemy's thoughts aside and to let your word speak louder than the enemy. Help us to be brave and courageous to love our families so desperately that we'd give anything for them, including our lives, knowing that ultimately we want your life to reign in them. In your name, amen and amen.